I'm Barbara Bogave in for Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Women's Rights After the Arab Spring on America Abroad. Isabel Coleman is a senior fellow for U.S. foreign policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's the author of the 2010 book, Paradise Beneath Our Feet, How Women Are Transforming the Middle East. I asked her how women are continuing that transformation today. Underneath the headlines, which tend to be very negative, headlines about violence against women, women being precluded from attending school or having limited economic opportunities. Beneath those headlines, there's actually a lot of very positive change happening in the region. Uh, Women are making gains, certainly educationally. You have the highest level of female education now across the Middle East. And and the Middle East, as I write about it in the book, is a broad region from Morocco all the way through to Afghanistan and Pakistan. And today, you know, in Afghanistan, you have more girls in school than you've ever had before in that country's history. In Saudi Arabia, which just a few generations ago, girls didn't even go to school, they now significantly outnumber men at the university level. And that's a trend you're seeing across the region. And now you see more women in government, in business, in the media, certainly. So you see women making a lot of gains. Well, I'm curious how women are using the momentum coming out of the Arab awakening to affect change, and specifically looking at Tunisia. Well, women have played an extremely important role in Tunisia. And it's important to remember that every country is different. And the starting point for women in every country is really quite different. And Arguably, in Tunisia, they were starting from the highest point, very high levels of education, one of the highest levels in the region of workforce participation, a long history of women's rights in Tunisia, dating back to 1956 when first President Bourguiba took power. He implemented a whole series of changes that, from a top-down perspective, but changes that over the last half a century have really been baked into Tunisia's political and cultural DNA in many respects that gave women a lot of rights. And in the post-revolutionary period, you saw women's groups organize. Uh, When that language was floated about women being complementary to men, you saw lots of protests in the streets, men and women together, but women's civil society groups organizing, getting people out, denouncing this as somehow code for complementary means not equal, and really demanding language around equality, which they do have in the Constitution. And the other thing that women's groups were very, very active on was two other things. One is making sure that they had a quota Uh, that actually gave them more than 25% of the seats in parliament, about 27% of the seats in parliament, which is higher than we have here in the United States. And they were very active organizing around that and also making it very clear that they didn't want Sharia to be the basis of law in their constitution. Now, it wasn't only women. You had broad secular coalitions that rallied behind that, but it really became a litmus test for women in many respects. So at this point, is it fair to say that the debate over women's rights in the Middle East in general is between secularists and Islamists, or is it between moderate and conservative Islamists? Well, you're seeing multiple debates going on in the Middle East today. And on one level, it used to be between secularists and Islamists. But today, it's in fact much more within Islam. Because if you look at a country, again, like Tunisia, 
Rashid Ganoushi, the leader, the spiritual uh, head of the Nada Party, you know, when he returned from exile in the first weeks after the revolution, he said again and again, look, I respect women's rights. They are a fact of life in Tunisia. But many secularists didn't believe him. And the reason they didn't believe him is because there are many Islamists who really don't believe that and are more conservative. Secularists are looking at the Islamists with great suspicion and finding it hard to figure out, well, what are we dealing with? Are we dealing with conservative Islamists or more progressive Islamists? And for the Islamists, they have to really prove where they fall out on some of these issues. And you saw the Muslim Brotherhood taking quite a different tack in Egypt. And in terms of people actually affecting change in basic institutions, where are you seeing the most promise? Well, you see it in a lot of different places. You see it certainly at a grassroots level. Women and men working on the ground through a variety of different civil society organizations to promote girls, whether it be girls' education or the right to an identity. I mean, this is a a big push that you've seen in many countries. Girls' births are often not registered, and they therefore don't legally exist. And so they can't access many of their legal rights. They can be married off at an early age, even if the law of the country says that the legal age of marriage is 18. Since they don't have a birth certificate, they just fall through the cracks. You see people promoting gains for women through the health services, uh, providing women with greater access to maternal and reproductive health. You certainly see it in the political sphere. Groups working both at the grassroots level to try to encourage women to participate politically. And this could be through all sorts of different training programs or media and at more of a an institutional top-down level. A lot of countries have implemented quotas now to pull women into the political system. You also see it in the private sector. The private sector is a huge driver of change. With so much of your human capital being educated women You see businesses turning more and more to women, to hire women, to promote women, and they become engines of change. They model new behaviors. They break down cultural barriers. And so you see a lot of change going on. In 2011, as its Arab neighbors were seeing popular uprisings and regime changes that brought Islamist parties to power, Turkey's Justice and Development Party, or AKP, was often seen as a model. It was an Islamist party freely elected three times that had brought great economic prosperity to Turkey. But recently, the AKP's image had been tarnished by a crackdown on street protests and growing authoritarianism. And in the area of women's rights, even as Turkey's parliament enacts laws supporting gender equality and other civil liberties for women, its leaders, such as Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan, offer rhetoric that signals a much more traditional, conservative attitude on the part of government. Dalia Murtada in Istanbul looks at how it's playing out. In early 2013, Turkey's Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan issued a call to arms of sorts. Speaking at a conference on family and social planning in Ankara, he urged married couples to produce at least three children, saying Turkey's economic stability depends on it. Or as he stated it, one or two children equals bankruptcy. And he called it an issue of family values. 
That triggered a wave of outrage from women's rights groups in Turkey. Lawyer Nazan Marolu says that was for good reason. She says it's just one more example of the message coming from the highest levels of government, that Turkish women should stay at home. She says it comes at a time when leaders aren't addressing the real threats to Turkey's progress. If the people running the country said this shouldn't be happening, and child marriages, and women's violence, then it would be different. Our women should work, for example. This is never said. Morolu offers some disturbing numbers. A quarter of Turkish marriages involve a child bride. Half of women over the age of 15 have reported abuse at home. Only 26% of girls graduate high school. Women make up just 28% of the workforce, and even that's a 45% jump from eight years ago. She argues that the ruling Justice and Development Party, the AKP, should train its focus on those areas and not on family planning. Women could have gone much further in the past 11, 12 years. The law supported us, but because of the mentality, we couldn't. The mentality she's talking about is the one that has parliament passing laws to address those inequities. But these days, she says, without the AKP's blessing, there's no follow-through. On one hand, starting from the Constitution onwards, in terms of rights, there are laws being passed, etc. Things were moving forward. Whereas in actual life, things are getting harder for women. It's a split between the democratic process and deep-rooted social conservatism, as Morolo sees it. She explains that the Turkish Republic's first constitution back in 1923 enshrined the rights of women. And those rights advance more or less in step with other Western nations. And as with more conservative countries, women's rights started going backwards. Documentary cameraman Koray Kesik, who just completed work on a film about child brides, sees decades of progress being reversed. Today there are women's suicides, honor killings, child marriages. It's a serious issue in Turkey, and it's a serious problem today. I'm married, I have a daughter, she's 16. Entrepreneur Bedriye Hulia agrees there's a serious issue, and she's doing something about it. In 2006, she founded BeFit, Turkey's first and only chain of women's fitness centers. She's driven mainly by a social mission, to encourage low- and middle-income women to get out of the house, maybe give them a sense of life beyond the home, even if it's just going to the gym a few times a week. She says that with all the pressure on women to focus only on the family, the concept was, and still is, kind of revolutionary. To buy a BeFit franchise, you have to be a woman. And BeFit owners don't typically fit the entrepreneurial mold, coming from more modest backgrounds. No surprise that Julia had to overcome a good number of skeptics. Yeah, in the beginning, of course, because nobody knew what we were doing. There wasn't anything like this before, so we had to first make it legitimate for people's eyes. Berna Aydin, a BeFit owner in Istanbul's Fati district, a deeply conservative Muslim neighborhood, sees BeFit as a model for women helping women. One of the women here was actually having a problem with her boss, and another woman's husband was a lawyer, and they're suing the boss. Another owner, Aida Tarakcian, who runs a BeFit near Istanbul's Taksim Square, agrees it's so much more than the workout or the social interactions. For some women, it's just the act of showing up claiming some time for themselves. Yeah, they, they are telling me now, uh, These 30 minutes are mine, they tell her. This is my right. 
I feel great, and life at home is better. Aiden hears it all the time. Getting out into the world, it changes your whole outlook. And she says she also sees an attitude shift among the men who know her as a successful business owner. One man in particular. For example, before owning this business, my husband was not listening to me that much. But now I feel stronger. Now he's listening to every word I say. Lawyer Nazan Morolu sees the women's movement as an important counterbalance to the AKP and Prime Minister Erdogan's rhetoric. But it's those small shifts as well, like the one between a woman and her husband, that keep her optimistic. I'm optimistic because women are aware. Even for those who are not aware, others will support them to gain more power within their families or in terms of their rights. For America Abroad, I'm Dalia Mortada in Istanbul. You're listening to Women's Rights After the Arab Spring on America Abroad. Coming up, some unnoticed but important gains for women in Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states. To learn more and to see photographs, visit our website, americaabroad.org.